All right. Well, uh, good afternoon. I hope everyone enjoyed uh, enjoy the lunch. Um, a quick announcement for the people who are at Morningstar. We weren't going to have lunch tomorrow, but we are now. If you want to stay, we're just going to heat up the leftovers. And if you want to stay, you can stay and eat. If you don't want to, feel free to go. If you want to take your food with you today and go home with it, feel free to do that. So don't feel obligated. But anyone who wants to stay will stay. Hey, actually, if you're from Tulsa and you want to come down, forget Jared. You don't need to see that guy. Come on down. We'll, we'll, we'll feed you. We'll feed you. So, no. Uh, so, anyway, so that's for the Morningstar Morning Star people. Again, we do have coffee out there if you need some. I know in the afternoon after a full stomach, uh, people can get drowsy. So, feel free to help yourself to that or whatever else. Also, you'll notice that behind me there's a, a number. We will have a Q&A session at the end of the conference and uh, kind of a way to help streamline that to where it makes it a little bit quicker uh, so we're not getting repetitive questions and we can kind of sift through those. If you'll just text them any questions you have to that number, if something comes up while you're uh, hearing uh, one of the uh, sessions and something comes up, send a, a message to that. Uh, if you don't have a phone and can't do that, give it to your buddy and let them send it in. And then when we do the Q&A, we'll do that. So we'll do uh, two sessions. We'll do one session, but we'll have two uh, topics that we'll address in this one. Then we'll take a little break, stretch your legs, use the restroom, and then we'll come back and do one final session where we'll have one topic and then a Q&A. And our goal is to try to be done uh, by 3 o'clock so everyone can get on their way. So... Um, I think that's all I have. So uh, Ish is going to come and he'll begin our, our first uh, lesson. We are not under law, but under grace. We are not under law, but under grace. We are in the age of grace. To say, once saved, always saved. Let's cling on to that and that solves all of our problems. Once saved, always saved or even eternal security. Eternal security, since we have eternal security, then there's nothing more to be concerned about. Others have said that a Christian becomes sinless at conversion. Sinless at conversion, or at, can be sinless at some point later in this earthly life. There is a doctrine known as sinless perfection that teaches falsely that people can be sinless in this life. Other people say that Jesus is Savior now at conversion, and we receive him as Savior to be saved from our sins. But we receive him as Lord some point later in life if we so choose. If we choose to make him our Lord later in life, then he is our Lord. But at the moment, he's just our Savior. He saved us from sin and gave us eternal life. In other words, people become believers to be saved, and they become disciples if they later receive Jesus as Lord. Therefore, good works prove that one is a disciple, not a believer. Good works, according to them, a very common notion, that one proves one is a disciple by good works, but a believer just because you say you believe in Jesus. Others, in relation to this doctrine, they say, Christians do not need to live for the day of judgment. No, there is no judgment of rewards. And then the, the term fear of God means respecting God without any connotations of terror or trembling. Others say that Christians are not supposed to judge themselves, 
They're not supposed to judge others inside the church, and they should not judge others outside the church. All of this preoccupation with looking for fruit, inspecting fruit to see if it's good fruit or rotten fruit, that's all unnecessary, whether in ourselves or in other people. And then others say, after receiving Christ, we should not talk about sin so much. Yeah, we heard the gospel once, and that's all we needed, and we rose, uh, raised our hand, and, or we arose and went to the front of the, the sanctuary, and we're all, all fine and good, so now we don't need to talk about sin. There's no need to talk, to talk about the gospel anymore. Affliction showed that the Lord, ha excuse me, assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation comes from praying the sinner's prayer, writing one's name in a tract, walking down the aisle, raising one's hand, being baptized as an infant, being baptized as an adult, being raised in a Christian family, being raised in a minister's family, having a vision of angels, having an emotional experience, having a role in the church. I'm a deacon, or I, I served uh, in a dedicated fashion here at the church, so that shows that I am a believer, and there's nothing more that I need to do because I always come and I make sure that all the lights are working and the, the AC or the heat is on, and that's my role in the church, and that's enough. Or I'm an American. Because I'm an American, I'm fine with God. There's no need to produce any good works. I'm just fine. Or there are some who say I'm a Democrat. Because I'm a Democrat, I'm just fine. Or I'm a Republican, and I'm just fine. They don't understand what the Bible means. Also, people misunderstood when the Bible says believer, disciple, my people, Israel, church, brother, brethren, children, so forth. People falsely assume that these words in the Bible always mean that those people are truly that. In other words, they don't think the Bible gives those kinds of names to false believers, to pretenders, to those who claim to know God but really don't know God. In fact, the Bible does do that. It does it throughout. There are people, many people in the Bible, many examples in the Bible of those who are called my people or Israel or church or brother, but they are not actually that. In fact, we read and saw earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that the man who has his father's wife, if he persists in that sin without repentance, without any remorse, without any turning from it, he is a so-called brother. He's a so-called brother. Yes, he's called a brother because he's here in the visible church, but he's not an actual brother. He's a so-called brother because he's demonstrating his rotten fruit by his wicked behavior. So, what does the Bible say about this? We started with the phrase, we are not under law, but under grace. This one is especially dangerous and pernicious because it's taken from the Bible and it has the appearance of being biblical because we know it to be a biblical phrase. That phrase is taken from Romans chapter 6. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6 and verse 1 we will encounter this phrase taken out of context, rested and twisted out of context, uh, context so that it is distorted and mangled and lacerated from its original meaning. Let's see that that is the case. Romans 6, what does this phrase actually mean in context? Romans 6, verse 1. 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Now, why does he ask this question? Because he has just explained justification by faith and the gracious, abundant, free gift of eternal life we have in Christ. That our sins are forgiven in Christ. He's already explained that. So then the natural question is, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Should we sin more so we can have more grace? Verse 2, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? No way, may it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If we died to sin, if sin was the cause of our death, why should we still live in it if we want life? Verse 3, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Do you not know? Who didn't teach you that? And if they did teach you that, why don't you remember that? Why did you not seek to understand what that means? Why don't you know? You should know better. Those who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. The baptism we have in Christ signifies partly his death. His death because of sin. And our sin if we identify with him. Verse 4. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Into death. In order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Why were we baptized and buried with Christ into his death? Verse 4 says, in order that. That's a conjunction that expresses the purpose. Why did that happen? In order that Christ, who was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, through the glorious power of the Father, he was raised from the dead. So now he has life. For what purpose? So we too, so we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus' immortal body, raised from the dead, is no longer susceptible to sin. He never sinned, but it was never susceptible to sin after his resurrection. And when he was tempted before, now he's not tempted anymore. Before, he was tired, he was weak, he was hungry and thirsty. He could experience pain, but not now. He has a new life. Well, did, not, did we not identify with Jesus in his death and his resurrection when we put our faith in him? So why, if we did that, do we not understand the meaning of his death and the meaning of his resurrection? His death was for our sin so that it might be buried. His life was for our righteousness and life. Because I live, you shall live also. Verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. If we are united with him in his death, in a like death, because we put faith in his crucifixion for our sins, then we are also correspondingly to do so for his resurrection. Identify and unite with him in his resurrection. Six, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Our old man, the sinful man, the sinful nature, the way we were from our conception until our conversion. Our old man that still resides within us was crucified with Christ. We said, 
No longer do we want to live for sin. We want to live for Christ. That our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Jesus said, John 8, 34 to 35, He who commits sin is the slave of sin. That's what the apostle says. From our conception, we were slaves of sin. And the reason for us being crucified with Christ is so our body of sin might be done away with. Whatever remnants of sin that are still in us might be buried and put to death and fought against day by day. That's the reason he, he died for our sins. Verse 7. For he who has died is freed from sin. He who has died is freed from sin. Now he makes this, this statement that it is plain a statement. It's very straightforward. Which corpse, which human corpse, when it is in the grave, is committing mass murder, adultery, theft, idolatry? None of them. None of them are. They stopped. They stopped sinning when their bodies died. Completely. He who has died is freed from sin. He no longer is a slave to sin. He has, is no longer practicing sin. He's freed from it all. Well, didn't we identify with Christ and die with Christ? That's the implication. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. If we believe, if we have died with Christ, and we believe we shall also live with him, then the same must be true of us. Just as Jesus no longer was susceptible to death, death reigned over him briefly for three days. It reigned over him briefly because of sin. Not his sin, but our sin. Our sin put him on the cross. So if our sin put him on the cross and he lives so we can have life, that means that we should live according to his life. Live according to his righteousness. Live to God. Not live for the devil, but live to God. And then consider ourselves, verse 11, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We have to have this mentality. We have to consider this conviction. Consider yourselves dead to sin. If corpses cannot sin, we ought to consider our old self and our standing in Christ right now just like a corpse, a dead body that cannot and will not sin. This is the way we ought to consider it and depend, as it says in verse 4, on the glory of the Father, the glorious power of the Father to live righteously for God. Verse 12. He continues to exhort us. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Do not let sin reign. Don't let it reign. It cannot be sovereign over you. It cannot be your master. Do not let it happen. That does not sound like it's negotiable, and it does not sound like it's something that we can agree to do at some point later in life. 
It doesn't sound like that. It sounds like a command. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now the members of our body that used to be complicit with us in our evil heart to do sin, whether it was our mouth, whether it was our hand, whether it was our feet, whether it was our eyes, whatever part of our body that was an instrument for unrighteousness must now be an instrument of righteousness for God. Verse 14. Now we come to the phrase that is rested and twisted out of context. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You are not under law, but under grace. On the surface of it, it is a biblical passage. It is a biblical verse. You are not under law, but under grace. And it does talk about law and grace. And it does talk about you or us, the consequences of what he's been saying. But what does this mean? The typical interpretation is, we are not under the law of Moses, therefore there are no laws to keep. That's the way people take it. We're not under the law of Moses, therefore there are no laws to keep. We're under grace. And grace means you can sin as much as you want, do whatever you want, and God, he will make up the difference. He'll do whatever it takes to smother and cover your sin so that there's no consequences, absolutely no consequences, because Jesus died for your sin. This is the way the passage is interpreted, the last part of the verse. You are not under law, but under grace. But is that what it means? Could it mean that in this context? Could it mean that at all? So far in the first 14 verses, or 13 and a half verses, could it mean that? Absolutely not. So what does it mean? When he says in verse 14, Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Remember, earlier he said in verse 6, You are no longer slaves to sin. And Jesus in John 8, 34 and 35, He who commits sin is the slave of sin, but if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Paul's meaning here is that when the grace of God has come into us, when the grace of God has transformed us and given us a new heart, we are no longer a slave to sin and guilty and uh, expecting the wrath of God, the punishment of God for our sin. Amen. We're no longer a slave of sin that deserves the wrath of God from the law of God. This is what he means. That's all he means by that. Straightforwardly, that's what he means. But we're under grace. We have the gracious power of God in us to help us to live the Christian life. First, that tr transformed our heart, granted us faith and repentance, and then grants us good works that we might live for him. This is what the verse means in context. You are not under the penalty of the law because of your enslavement to sin. Now you have the gracious provision of God in order to overcome sin. So sin shall not be your master anymore. Now, if that was unclear, 
Look at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. You notice the exclamation there. May it never be. He says, he anticipates people who are prone to taking words out of context. He anticipates and he knows human nature that here's a word, a nice word, grace, love, mercy, compassion. They hear these nice words and they're prone to misunderstanding what the Bible means by those words. So when the Bible said grace, did he mean that we can live however we want and continue practicing sin? No. 15. Anticipating the wicked human heart that makes excuses for sin. Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Don't ever misinterpret me. That's the Im implication of Paul. Don't misinterpret me. That's not what I mean. That's not what God means. But that hasn't kept people over the ages from misinterpreting the Apostle Paul. And when they misinterpret the Apostle Paul, they misinterpret God. And when they misinterpret God, they say, God, you didn't make it clear enough. Then they accuse God of being so obtuse that he does not know how to communicate clearly to humans. They are accusing God of being dull and obtuse and unable to communicate a simple word to man so that they might know his will. They end up calling God a liar and themselves truth tellers when actually they are the liars and they are the distorters and twisters, not God. Amen. He speaks clearly, clearly enough on many, many subjects. Now, if this has not been clear so far, Verse 16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Do you not know? Why don't you know? Don't you have the Bible in hand? Have you never read the Bible? Have you never heard a preacher? Have you not heard a good preacher? Do you not know? Why don't you know this? You should know this by now, that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. He's saying to us, don't you realize, both from the Bible and from human experience, that you're a slave of one thing or another. You are always obeying one thing or another. You are either obeying your sinful whims or you are going to obey the wisdom of God. It's one way or the other. You cannot have it both ways. And don't you understand that's the way it works? If you have a master, if you have a boss, an employer, you have to obey the one who's fully in charge. You cannot obey three or four who give you conflicting information. You have to decide, I am hired by this boss to do this task. This is the task I must do. And there cannot be a conflict. If there is a conflict, then you are not pleasing the master, your boss, or whoever. Either it's going to be sin, or it's going to be obedience and God. It's one or the other. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness.
But thank God. Thank God that we're no longer slaves of sin. We were that. But because of obedience that started in the heart and then transformed our actions, our obedience, that which started in the heart made its way to our hands so that we became committed to that form of teaching, that form of teaching that was the gospel, the gospel of Christ that freed us from sin and made us slaves of righteousness. Note here in verse 18, it's good to be a slave. Verses 17 and 18, it's good to be a slave. When one is a slave of righteousness, one is a slave of God. Isn't it better to be a slave of God than to be a slave of the devil or the world or the flesh? Listen, the world will just use you. They have their own uh, very destructive and wicked desires. The world will use you to the extent that you conform to the world, the world will pat you on the back. They will flatter you. The world will use you. They don't really care for you and love you. Now, do you think the devil loves you and cares for you? No. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8. He wants to devour you, to destroy you, to drag you with him into hell. Amen. He's a vicious and malicious creature. So, why pay attention to him? And then, why pay attention to your own sin? Why should we pay attention to our depraved, our corrupt, sinful nature? Because we know. We know that when we sin, it pricks our conscience. We know it pricks our conscience, does it not? If it pricks our conscience, isn't our conscience there so that we might know the difference between right and wrong? And if it's there to prick us and we know we've done wrong, why do we want to wallow in it? Why do we want to gobble up garbage? Why, why do that? Why wallow and, and be in misery in the guilt, the, the filthy guilt of our sinful nature? Why? So the world, the flesh, and the devil, they are our enemies and they enslave us to corruption and death. So don't have anything to do with it. But be a slave of righteousness. Be a slave of God, he says. Be a slave of God and of righteousness because when you are a slave of God, you will be free. Spiritually. You'll be free ironically. You see, when the human mind hears, be a slave of God, we think, oh no, God's going to put chains on me. He's going to put me in stocks and bonds and I'm not going to like it. I don't want any of this. But those who have a new heart, a transformed heart, understand that obeying God is joy. Obeying God is peace. Obeying God is freedom. That's what Jesus said. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. When we are obeying God, that's when we have overwhelming joy. That's when we have overwhelming passion and enthusiasm and zeal for the things of God and to do righteousness and everything that pleases God. That's what he's talking about. We're either slaves of sin or of righteousness. But being a slave of righteousness, paradoxically speaking, is true, ultimate freedom. For if we are obeying God, and God is a slave to no one, we have access to the freedom of God. Verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. 
For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the, th for the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He speaks in human terms. He, he uses these human examples and analogies because we can't understand the unseen world without the seen world. So in the visible world, he says, you were members, uh, your members were slaves to impurity, lawlessness, and further lawlessness. Lawlessness begets lawlessness. When one is a son of the devil and one begets another, he makes him twice as much a son of the devil as himself. Matthew 24, 14, if the teacher teaches his pupil the way the teacher believes, the pupil becomes twice as bad and evil and devilish as his master. And this is what happens with sin. When we don't reject sin, impurity and lawlessness lead to further impurity and further lawlessness. But on the other hand, if we are slaves to righteousness, it results in sanctification. Sanctification, holiness, becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Now, again, he puts a dichotomy before us in verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. The one who practices sin does not practice righteousness. The one who practices righteousness does not practice sin. The two cannot be commingled, biblically speaking. We're talking about the practice of sin, being engrossed in sin, or whether one is practicing righteousness, being fully uh, enthusiastic and in conformity to true righteousness. It's either one or the other. And if you are practicing righteousness, then there's no sin. If you're practicing sin, then there is no righteousness. It's one or the other. So, if that's the case, when we were practicing sin, what was the benefit? He says in verse 21, What was the benefit except shame and death? Shame and death. With shame comes guilt. And because of the guilt, we deserve death. We die spiritually, that is alienation from God, and we die physically, our physical bodies experience mortality. We go to the grave. This is the outcome of sin. This is what God told Adam and Eve in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. And this is what we experience, what all people experience. Spiritual and physical alienation, that is death. So now, 22. Now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. When we are slaves of God, the results are sanctification and eternal life. Sanctification and eternal life. The miraculous power of God at work in us from the time of our conversion until the time of our coffin. From, coffin to con uh, from conversion to coffin, we have sanctification and we have a deposit of eternal life now. But when we see the Lord face to face, full, enjoyable, abundant, eternal life forever 
and ever. Immortality, no longer any death, pain, sorrow, sin, devil, the world, nothing. Nothing anymore. So who would not want to be a slave of God and to have eternal life? This is what God puts before us. And then the familiar verse, verse 23. This passage, too, is quite often not understood in context. For the wages of sin is death. Yes, true. This is an evangelistic verse, usually used like that. It is true. The wages of sin is death. But when he says the wages of sin is death, he did not just mean that you deserve to die, but if you receive Jesus or you come to the front, raise your hand, get baptized, become a member of the church, then everything's just fine. And then you can live happily ever after the rest of your time on earth. He did not imply that. Though many people who use this verse imply that when they're telling unbelievers the gospel, the perverted gospel. They're telling them, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. To receive this free gift, all you need to do is pray with me, this short prayer, and then you're saved. And then I'll move on to somebody else, and he gives the person no further instructions, no further obligations in relation to the gospel, and then he goes and lives a wicked life for the rest of his life. That's not what this verse means. This verse means the wages of sin is death, death in the context of what we've been discussing here throughout the chapter. And the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This free gift of God is in relation to us being a slave of God and experiencing the grace of God, the grace of God that saved us from sin and the grace of God that sanctifies us, makes us more and more holy throughout our Christian life. Not perfectly holy, no one will obtain that, but we gradually and progressively change from lesser to greater in sanctification or holiness. And the ultimate outcome in Christ Jesus our Lord is eternal life. The apostle, and therefore God, could not be more clear. This passage is quite plain and simple to understand. It does not require a genius to figure out what the apostle means. What the apostle means is not the way this phrase is bandied about. When people say we are not under law but under grace, as an excuse to live a wicked life, to live no differently before their profession of faith than after their profession of faith, when they have no change whatsoever, they are not doing justice to the word of God, they are violating the word of God, contradicting the word of God, and they're actually taking the word of God and throwing it into a rubbish heap. This is not what it means. To say we are not under law but under grace is a wonderful truth. We're no longer slaves of sin, therefore we do not deserve the wrath of God that the law requires because God has graciously given us faith to believe in Christ, to be forgiven of our sins, and to live for him from the moment of our conversion until the time we enter our coffin. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Our Lord, we ask that you'll help us to be fully convinced of these truths and help us to withstand the onslaught of the world that twists and distorts this word. Give us your power, fill us with your Holy Spirit. 
Yes, Lord, the glory of the Father that raised Jesus from the dead. You have raised us by our confession and faith, and we pray that you'll continue with your glorious power to give us grace to live for you. We want to live for you, Lord, so empower us. We know that your power is perfected in our weakness. In Christ, amen. All right. <clears throat> well, our next uh, topic is uh, this cliche or this phrase that is often used within the church uh, to promote a, a type of, uh, of unity or uh, graciousness uh, among those of different and of varying beliefs. We recognize that there are many denominations, many people who call themselves Christians, and of these different denominations, there are a variety of beliefs or opinions on certain doctrines or certain passages of Scripture, which is why there's the evidence or, or the reality of all these different groups and sects of Christianity. And so uh, there is a, a term or a phrase that has been thrown out that, that is used, and this one hits very close to home uh, because this is used not just a lot of these things that we're dealing with among those that are more conservative, more Bible-believing, we recognize that there are holes, there are faults, and things that are, are deficient about these things, and we recognize those and expose them. However, this one, this one cliche that we'll deal with today, is thrown around and used by those who are considered to be very respectable uh, teachers, uh, those who are most conservative, those who are most solid. Uh, even uh, Albert Moeller, who is the president of the seminary that I attended, uh, has taught this, uh, this thing uh, and has divided doctrines up into basically three tiers. That there are those that are our first level, second level, and third level, and that uh, we have to respond to those in different ways, in different ways. Uh, so this is one that is uh, prevalent throughout the church in evangelicalism and even in many conservative churches. This is assumed to be true. And so what we want to do today is examine it and look at what the Bible says and see, is there any biblical warrant for believing this? So let me give you the, the, the phrase or the cliche, and then we will uh, unpack it. The cliche goes as this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And again, just as with many of the other ones, there is an element of truth in these things, but it's only if we define what you mean by essential and what you mean by non-essential. This is what never takes place, and this is why it's very dangerous because it's thrown out without anyone ever defining what is essential and what is non-essential. So what is meant by this phrase, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity? Why, what is meant when this is used, why do they say this, and what are they trying to accomplish and do? Basically what this phrase does is it provides a way of categorizing or dividing up biblical truths based upon a perceived level of importance. A perceived level of importance. Some truths or doctrines or commands are considered to be essential. They are essential to believe. If one does not believe these doctrines or truths, then they are outside of the faith. They are outside of orthodox Christianity. 
So in essential things, they would say, we must be united. We cannot budge on these. We must not give up any ground. We cannot agree to disagree. We cannot call those who have a deviant view of these doctrines, we cannot call them brothers. We cannot even call them Christians. These are essential doctrines primary doctrines, non-negotiable doctrines. They'll be called gospel issues or issues of salvation. And we would agree, yes, there are essentials. There are issues that are issues of life and death, and we can't budge on these things. The issue is which doctrines are essential and which ones are not. So there are essential doctrines, and on these we have to be united. However, they say there are other truths, other doctrines, other commands which are considered to be non-essential. Each person has a view or opinion on these doctrines or commands. Each person believes that their view is the proper view. They also believe that everyone would be better served if they adhered to their view, but it's not essential for them to do so. That, that if they hold to a deviant view or something that is different, that's okay. We might argue with them. We might bicker with them. We might get into a debate with them over these things. We might even try to persuade them to our opinion. But at the end of the day, we're all going to shake hands, high five, uh, clap each other, you know, do these types of things, go our separate ways and say that we can just agree to disagree on these things. One can be a good Christian, a good Bible-believing Christian, and believe one thing about this truth, or one can be a good Bible-believing Christian and have a different interpretation that is contradictory to the other interpretation. It doesn't matter. You can either receive it or you can reject it. Right? Or there's various, they, they, they usually don't use the word reject. What they do is say there's various interpretations. There's various interpretations of this one doctrine. Right? And you can either hold to this interpretation or to that interpretation. But the problem is, is that the various interpretations contradict each other. They are contradictory. They cannot go together. So what we're saying is one can have the true understanding and one can have a false understanding and it doesn't matter. They can both go and they can coexist together. So for example, the doctrine of creation. There are those who believe that God created the world in six literal days, that the earth is roughly 6,000 years old. They are creationists. When they read Genesis 1 through 2, they say that, yes, God created the world in six days. He created the world by simply speaking his word, and that this took place, according to the, chrono uh, the chronologies of the Bible, roughly 6,000 years ago. This is how the creation took place. Then there will be others who will say, no, 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 that's not the way it took place at all. Genesis 1 and 2 are not to be taken literal, they're to be taken figuratively. These aren't literal days of creation, but these are symbolic of ages of creation. And actually, God created the world 6 billion years ago, or billions of years ago, and he used the processes of evolution to bring that about. And even death and misery and chaos existed in the world for billions of years up until uh, God created the Garden of Eden. And there are those who hold to this view. And they will say that this is a non-essential issue. One can hold to one view. One can be young earth, creationist, 
or one can be an old earth evolutionist and everyone can still be a good Christian who believes in the true gospel and who preaches the true gospel. Both of these are valid, acceptable interpretations and in that we can agree to disagree. We might have a friendly debate. We might get up on the stage and I'll give my view, you give your view, but at the end of the day we're going to shake hands, pat each other on the back and go our separate ways and congratulate each other in front of the audience on us both being masters of the universe. This is what they will do. Or, for example, the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election. The one, the Calvinist, believes that election is based upon the sovereign choice of God. That God chooses those who will be saved before the creation of the world or before the foundation of the world. That God's choice in saving one and not the other is based solely upon the will of God and has no regard to anything he sees in any man. This is how they interpret the doctrine of election, the Calvinists. The other, the Arminian, believes that, no, 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 this is not right. This is not what the doctrine of, the ele of election teaches. But rather, God elects people based upon his knowledge and his foreseeing of their free will choice to accept him. God knows that this person is going to respond positively to the gospel. And because God sees that before they were even created, he knows that they're going to do this. Therefore, God elects that person to salvation. He sees that they will choose him, and as a result, God chooses them. So the Calvinist believes that he chose God because God first chose him, and the Arminian believes that God chose him because he chose God. Right? They both have different views, and these are contradictory. Right? They both can't be true. It's either one or the other. But it's not essential for salvation. This is what will be said. So you believe in your view, and I'll believe in my view. Right? We might even again have a debate, or we might argue over these things. I'll try to persuade you, you try to persuade me. But at the end of the day, we can just agree to disagree. We can work together. We can coexist and harmonize with one another. What you do is good, and what I do is good. None of us are evil. We're all okay. We can shake hands, high five, go our separate ways. Because while we may disagree on some of these secondary matters... We all believe the same gospel, right? We all preach the same gospel. We all believe in the same Jesus. Yeah, we don't agree on this, but the gospel we preach is essentially the same, as if this has nothing to do with our understanding of God's sin, salvation, or the grace of God. <clears throat> These issues are non-essential. They are secondary. They are negotiable. They're not issues of life or death. They're not issues of salvation. They are not gospel issues. And again, it is said that we can agree to disagree on these truths. Again, we can have a good, harmonious relationship. We can call them brothers. We can work together. We can coexist. We can sing kumbaya together, right? We can do all these things. It's okay. And the way this goes is there are typically two or three things that are essential and two or three thousand that are non-essential. This is what happens. There's two or three things that are essential, things that we already all agree upon. Right? We find out what everyone agrees upon, and we say, those are the essentials. And then everything that we disagree on, well, those are non-essential. Those are non-essential, so we don't have to deal with the issues. This is what it does. Now, what are the problems with this? Again, this is a cliche that is alive and well in our churches, in conservative churches, in evangelicalism, even in reformed churches. These things are alive and well, even among so-called conservatives. So what are the problems? What are the problems with this phrase? Problem number one, <clears throat> where is this taught in the Bible? Where is this taught in the Bible? What passage of scripture teaches that some doctrines are essential and other doctrines are non-essential? What prophet or what apostle 
tells his readers when he is writing to them, okay, now, uh, church here in Galatia, I want you to understand that when I'm writing to you, chapters 1 through 4, you have to believe. These are essential, and if you don't believe these, you're outside the faith. But chapters 5 through 6 are non-essential. It's better if you do believe them, but if you don't, that's okay. You're still going to go to heaven. Who does that? What prophet or apostle ever writes a book of the Bible and the assumption is, is that part of what he writes you have to believe and part of what he writes is dispensable. You don't have to believe it if you don't want to. You can still go to heaven. Where is this at? Does your Bible have breaks in it that has a break in the, in the train of thought and says from this point forward, this is not essential. This is not an issue of salvation. It would be better if you believe this, but you don't have to. Or do you have footnotes in your Bible that you go down and you reference and it says non-essential. Okay, all right, well, I don't have to believe this if I don't want to. Does your Bible have an appendix? An appendix with a list. A list of doctrines on the one side that are essential to believe and a list of doctrines on the other side that are non-essential. A list of commandments on the one side that you must obey and a list of commandments on the other that are optional to obey. You can if you want, but you don't have to if you don't want to. Where is this ever taught in the Bible? People throw this out, this phrase. Oh, yes, there's essentials and non-essentials. There's first, seven, first level, second level, and third level. But then guess what they never do? They never provide a list. Give me a list, sir. Give me a list, uh, doctor. Give me a list, theologian. Show me which ones are essential and which ones are non-essential. Which ones do I have to believe and which ones can I throw away that I can dispense with? Right? And if there are doctrines that are non-essential... Why are we even talking about them? Right? If they're not issues of salvation, then why would we spend any time talking about these things? If they're not issues of life and death, issues of heaven and hell, then let's talk about the things that are. And let's quit wasting our time on those things that don't matter. And yet what they want to do is they want to talk about these things, but then they want to say, well, they're not essential. Why are we wasting our time with these things if they are not essential? This is not found in the Bible. The expectation of the Bible the writers of the Bible, the apostles and the prophets who wrote the Bible, what they expect of their readers is that they believe, receive, confess, and obey every single word that they say. Whatever doctrine is taught, whatever teaching there is, they bind their people to listen and to heed it and to believe it and to confess it. And whatever command is found, no matter how frivolous or inconsequential it may seem to us, they expect the people to obey what they command. Not because the people think it's important or unimportant, but because it comes from God. It comes from God Almighty, and they are bound to believe it. They must believe, and they must obey, not some of it, but all of it. But all of it. Second John, Second John uh, verse 7 says this. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourself, so that you not may lose what we have worked for but may win the full reward. Everyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Whoever goes ahead, whoever goes ahead and does not abide in the essential teachings of Christ? Is that what it says? What does it say? In the teachings of Christ. 
all the teachings of Christ. Whatever Christ has taught, if someone does not abide in those teachings, they do not have God. If they go ahead of them, if they reject them, if they add to them or take away from them, they do not have God. But if they teach and they confess and they rejoice in these teachings, then they do have God. Now, people will immediately throw up, well, what about Romans 14? What about Romans 14? Romans 14 says that we shouldn't pass judgment on others on opinions. One has one opinion and one has another opinion, and we shouldn't pass judgment upon them. So let's look at Romans 14 and see what it is that he's talking about there and how that is not justification for promoting the dispensing of entire doctrines of the Bible. Romans chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So he says that there is one who is weak in faith. Notice that first. He says they're weak in faith. Their faith is not as strong. It is deficient. It is not as good. The best thing for them is to become what? It's for them to become strong in faith, for them to get over these things so that they grow up. However, in this case, what their weakness is is not something that he wants them to quarrel about. It's not something that he wants to, for them to pass judgment on these things. But what is he talking about? not quarreling over opinions. Is he talking about different views of, of doctrines? One person has one view of what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God and another has a different. One person receives the doctrine of election, the other rejects it. Is that what he's talking about? Well, look at what he says. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And then he goes on. One person esteems one day as better than another. Another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Again, it's dealing here with food. One eats meat and the other one only eats vegetables. The weak person, the weak brother, doesn't realize that it doesn't matter what he puts into his body as far as the food that he eats. All of it has been created by God. All of it is clean. All of it is good for life. It's good for food. However, his conscience hasn't come and he's not matured enough in the faith to realize that yet. And it still, it convicts him. It doesn't sit right with him for him to eat meat. And he thinks he should only eat vegetables. And Paul says, leave him alone. Don't, don't quarrel with him over this. Don't, don't make this a burden to him because it's just a matter of food, right? In, the, in the, the, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, right? What matters is righteousness. And if he's living a righteous life, but he still doesn't think it's okay for him to eat meat, but he's not pressing that on everyone else, then leave him be. Don't bother him. Don't quarrel with him over these things. That is a far different scenario than him rejecting a doctrine of the Bible, or him rejecting one of the commands of Christ, right? Well, he doesn't believe that adultery is a sin, but you do believe it's a sin, so don't quarrel with him over that. Well, of course not. We wouldn't accept that. Of course, at that point, because he's committing an open sin, something that is morally evil and against God, at that point, the stronger should come to him and say, brother, you must repent of your sin, that you cannot do these things. You cannot practice these things. This is the only place in the Bible this is the only place here where we have this so taught that you can have one view or the other. It's in regards to eating meat or vegetables or in regards to one has one day and one has another. But it's not in regards to one person believes this doctrine and the other person rejects it. It never is taught 
in that regard. The first problem with this phrase, this cliche, is it's simply not found in the Bible. The Bible gives no such classification of doctrines into essential or non-essential, so it is not taught in the Bible. Which brings us to the second problem. The second problem, if it's not taught in the Bible, then where does it come from? It must come from the wisdom of man. It exalts the wisdom of man. This is the problem. It is a scheme. Again, it's not even a cliche. It's a scheme. It's a scheme created by schemers to subject the Bible to the wisdom of man. It subjects the doctrines of the Bible to man's own whims and wishes. We have seen, it's clear, and, and no one has ever, I've, I've challenged many people to this, show me where this is taught in the Bible. Give me the, the passage that says there's a distinction between essentials and non-essentials, and no one has to date provided me with a single example of this. It is not found in the Bible. Well, if it's not found in the Bible, if this categorizing of doctrines into essential and non-essential is not in the Bible, and it, then where does it come from? It has to proceed from man. But this gets everything backwards. The way we are to approach the Bible is we are to subject ourselves to it. The Bible is to stand over us, and we are to submit ourselves to what the teachings of the Bible are. We are never, never to place ourselves over the top of the Bible and to give our wisdom and look down upon it and make these types of distinctions. This is what the Roman Catholics do. This is what the Pope does. And we condemn them for doing such things, and yet it's happening in our own midst. Men, through their wisdom, standing over the Bible, making distinctions about things that are not found in the Bible based upon their own whims and wishes. Who decides? Who decides which doctrine is essential? Who decides which command is essential? And which ones are non-essential? The scholar? The doctor? The professor? Right? The, the celebrity pastor, are they the ones who get to do these things? Are they the ones that get to make this distinction? Do we get to? Who, who, who makes this distinction? Right? It subjects the teachings of the Bible to the assumptions, to the whims, the wishes, and the wisdom of man. A man determines that this doctrine is primary and this other one is secondary without this coming from God. Who gives him the right to do these things? Who do you think you are, O oh man? It is arrogance. They say that it's because they're gracious. They say that it's because we want to be loving and gracious to our brothers who disagree with us. But actually it's arrogance. It is arrogance before God Almighty because you dare to say that something God has revealed is not essential to believe. It is based, this distinction is based on a perceived importance. A perceived importance that comes from man. What makes the doctrine of the Trinity, they will say, essential, and the doctrine of election non-essential, is that a man perceives, according to his own wisdom, that the doctrine of the Trinity is extremely important, while the doctrine of the election is less important. The one is indispensable, the other one is dispensable. But what is it that makes a command or a doctrine essential? Is it the perception of man? Or is it the authority of the one who gave it? What makes the Bible, what makes us submit to it, what makes us stand and tremble before it, right? which is what the righteous man does, the humble man, the one that God looks to. He trembles at the word of God. What makes us tremble at the word of God is not that we say, well, this verse is really important, so I'll tremble at that one, but this one is less important. It is not based upon my perception. It is the authority of the one who gave it. 
And whatever God says, that settles the issue. And therefore, it must be believed. And whatever He commands, it must be obeyed. It is the authority of Christ that makes the Bible essential to believe. That we must receive whatever He says. Whatever is clearly taught in the Bible must be received. We must submit to it. We cannot reject it. We must believe these things. And if we don't, what we're doing is we're saying to the face of Christ, you can't tell me what to believe. You can't tell me what to do. My wisdom is better than yours. I know better than you do. How arrogant. Right? They act like if Jesus was here, then he would settle all these things. Right? This is just like the woman at the well. Oh, when the Messiah comes, he'll, he'll make all these things clear to us. It's confusing right now. We need the Messiah. He's going to make all these things clear. It was already clear. Because you have the prophets. You have the law and the prophets. Go to them. It's clear there, but it always becomes cloudy because they have all these many teachers. We need someone to clarify these things. And this is how it is today. With all these debates and all these opinions, everyone says, well, if Jesus was here, he'd set it straight. Well, Jesus has set it straight. He set it straight in his Bible. The problem is, is that people don't like what Jesus said. They don't like what he says, and they reject it, and they come up with schemes whereby they can give lip service to the word of God, but they can do whatever their own evil heart wants. They can believe whatever they want, they can do whatever they want, and yet still give lip service to Christ. Which sounds very familiar, right? Mark chapter 7. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they teach as uh, doctrines the commandments of men. It was happening in Jesus' day. And Jesus is quoting from who? From Isaiah, which happened in his day as well. It happens in every day. You go back to the Garden of Eden and what is happening in Genesis chapter 3. That which is clear and direct and straightforward. Don't eat of that tree. Is there anything confusing about that? Is that hard to understand? You see that tree over there? Don't eat of the fruit. Don't eat of the fruit. And yet what happens? The word of God, which is clear, which is direct, which is straightforward, it's accessible, it's easy to understand, yet when the deceiver comes, he twists the word of God, he distorts it, so what was clear becomes cloudy, and now they don't know what to do. And then they blame God for their disobedience and for everything that happens. And this... There is nothing new under the sun. The same thing is happening in our own day. Whatever Christ has taught, who is, by the way, King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, what makes the doctrine essential, what makes a command essential, what makes anything an issue of salvation, what makes everything an issue of life and death is the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who will judge the world in righteousness. Whatever Christ teaches, whatever doctrines are in the Bible that he has revealed, I have to believe these things. Not only do I have to believe them, I must confess these things before men. Right? If I'm ashamed of them, he will be ashamed of me. But if I'm not ashamed of them, he will not be ashamed of me when he comes in his glory. I must believe them, receive them, confess them, rejoice in them. Right? It's not enough that I believe them. I also must love these doctrines and shout them from the rooftops. We have nothing to be ashamed of if we believe the doctrines of Christ. Not because I think they're important, but because Jesus says they're important. They come from the very lips of Christ. Whatever he teaches, whatever doctrine he has revealed, I am bound to believe. And not just me, but everyone who claims the name of Christ is bound. And not just everyone who claims the name of Christ, even the unbelievers are bound to obey it. And if they won't, he will judge them for their unbelief. He will do this. And whatever he has commanded, whatever Christ has commanded, I am bound to obey. 
Not only am I bound to obey it, but all who claim the name of Christ are bound to obey it. And not only us, but even the unbelieving world is bound to obey the commands of Christ because he is Lord of glory. He is the king over all kings. He is the ruler of this world because it comes from Christ. He commands it. Therefore, we must obey it. Now, of course, we recognize that there are doctrines that are foundational. There are doctrines that are of first importance, doctrines that we have to come to an understanding of before we can ever even understand anything about the Christian religion. We have to understand these things. We have to understand who God is. We have to understand what our sin is. We have to understand the justice and the righteousness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God. We have to understand the atonement and the divinity and the humanity of Christ. We have to understand all of these things. Yes, there are doctrines that are foundational or doctrines that are of first importance and then others that are built upon them. But just because that is the case, that doesn't mean that the second group we can just get rid of. That it doesn't matter what we believe. And even Jesus recognized in Matthew 23, that there, there were some matters of the law that were more weighty. The weightier matters of the law. But what does he say there? Does he say, well, keep the weightier ones, but the other ones you can just get rid of. He says, these you should have kept while not neglecting the others. He says, you need to keep both the weighty and those that are less weighty. You need to keep all of it because all of it comes from God. So we're not saying that there is not things that we need to teach first or understand first and build upon, but we must believe all of these things. Nor are we saying that everyone has to have a perfect, complete understanding of every single aspect of every single doctrine before they can be saved. We are all growing in the Christian faith. We are all growing in our understanding of the truth, in our understanding of who God is. We're all growing in our understanding of the scriptures. And there are things that I know today that I didn't know last year. Was I an unbeliever then because I didn't know those things? Even the Apostle Paul says that he knows in part, and he is much farther than any of us in his understanding of God and in his righteousness. Even he knew in part and looked forward to the day when he would know fully. But there is a big difference, a massive difference, between one who is growing, one who is working through the issues, one who is seeking understanding. There's a big difference between that one and one who willfully and defiantly rejects what is taught in the Bible and oftentimes ridicules and blasphemes the very doctrines that are taught in the Bible. One who outwardly confesses that which is contrary to the truth and leads others to do the same thing and even blasphemes the very truths of God who twists and contorts the scripture to make that which is clear unclear in order to undermine the clear teachings and commands of Christ. The one who does those things, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. Woe to him. Woe to him who is wise in his own eyes and shrewd in his own understanding. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 21. This is the scheme of man. A scheme built upon human wisdom and human shrewdness. And this must be rejected. That was problem number two. The third problem with this scheme is it promotes a form of Christian relativism. What it actually does, it promotes a form of Christian relativism. It undermines the truth in the clear teachings of Scripture. It gives to men a pass and validates multiple contradictory interpretations of one passage or of one doctrine. Right? We understand that 
if one thing is true, that which is contrary to it cannot also be true. 2 plus 2 equals 4. 2 plus 2 equals 5. Both of those cannot be equally true, right? One is true and the other is false. But if I say 2 plus 2 equals 4 and 2 plus 2 equals 5 are both valid interpretations of the phrase 2 plus 2, what am I actually saying? I'm saying that we can't really know what 2 plus 2 is and that it really doesn't matter. We cannot access the truth. We cannot come to these things. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. You want to undermine Christianity? You want to undermine the Christian truth and the Christian gospel, the Christian religion? Start promoting. Start promoting something that undermines the truth, that makes it to where we cannot gain access to what the Bible truly says and what God has revealed. This is what this nonsense does. It undermines the truths of the gospel. We serve a God of truth. Christ is the he is the second person of the Trinity, the very Word of God. He is truth, the Spirit of truth. We preach the gospel of truth. Our faith is built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, which wrote the words of truth revealed by God, by His Spirit. The very basis of the church, the very basis of our Christian mission, is that we go into the world and we preach the gospel to every nation. Not a gospel of relativism, not a gospel of you can believe this or not. We go into the world and we tell those people that they are serving false gods. They have false prophets. Your books are false books. You do not know the way of salvation. It is a false form of religion. And we have the what? We have the truth. We worship the true God. We have the true way of salvation. We have the true words of God. You must reject your false gods, and you must believe in the true God. You must put these things aside. This is the very basis of our going into the world, is proclaiming the truth. It is built upon the truth. Our faith, Christianity, is built upon the truths, the truths of the gospel. They must be safeguarded at all costs. And the Bible stands, or it falls together. It either stands as a whole, or it falls as a whole. And you cannot begin to take parts of the Bible and extract them and throw them away and continue holding on to the body of doctrine. You cannot say, well, some of these things we can dispense with and then think that that's not going to affect those other things. This is what it eventually leads to. Because what is essential in one generation, what happens in the next generation? It becomes non-essential. What's clear to the one becomes unclear to the next. And eventually what happens? the whole thing unravels, right? You pull out the one little thread and where does it stop, right? The one crack in the foundation and the whole house eventually comes crumbling down. And we have a very vivid example of this. Go to England. Go to the Northeast in America and you will find there churches, buildings that are empty, buildings that are nothing but empty tombs where there used to be vibrant preaching of the gospel, where there used to be men of God who proclaimed the truths of God, some of the greatest men that the, that the church has ever produced who were great theologians and great preachers of the gospel. Institutions that used to train missionaries and pastors to go and faithfully preach the word of God. And what will you find there? Nothing. They've rejected everything. Everything. And, what, and how did that start? Did they begin by rejecting the Trinity? Did they begin by rejecting the deity and the humanity of Christ? Did they begin by accepting sodomy and these other types of sins? Absolutely not. It began with one or two things here or there. 
And the ones, like Spurgeon, who were saying we cannot do this, what were they all saying to him? Well, you're just a, you're an, you're a radical. You're a rabble-rouser. Why can't you just get along? These aren't issues of salvation. These aren't gospel issues. We can agree to disagree with, over these things. And yet he was saying the end of this will be the complete destruction of the church. And who was proved to be right? Spurgeon was. What this cliche does is it provides a subtle way, a subtle way to undermine the truth. Because it says that at least part of the Bible, some of the doctrines of the Bible, don't have to be believed. That they are unknowable. We can't really know for certain what the Bible says, so we have to be gracious to everyone. By allowing and validating multiple contradictory interpretations, we are asserting that we actually cannot know the truth. That the truth is unclear, it is unaccessible to us. So on the issue of creation... The earth is 6,000 years old. The earth is 6 billion years old. We realize that both of those can't be true, right? It's impossible for both of those to be equally true. Either one is true and the other one is false, or the one is true and then the other one is false. Both of those cannot be equally true. It's either one or the other. But to assert that both of those are valid, good, faithful interpretations is to say that it doesn't really matter what we believe and we can't know it anyway the doctrine of election. It's either based on God's choice or it's based on man's choice. Right? It's one or the other. One of those is true and one of those is false. But to say that we can't know, to say that both are good, valid interpretations, both are good, faithful, Bible-believing people, is to say that, that, that God is a God of contradiction. It's to say that we can't really know what the truth is and it really doesn't matter after all. We can just believe whatever we want to believe. It doesn't really matter. We have to give liberty to all these. And again, who gets to determine on which doctrines we give liberty to and which ones we don't? Because the Mormons believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but they define the Son of God differently than we do. They have a different interpretation. Are we going to give liberty to them to be okay and welcome them into the Christian fold? Right? The Roman Catholics believe in justification. They just define it differently than us. Or is that okay? Are we going to let them in? If everything is open to interpretation, let's just all go back to Rome. Let's all go and be in one big church together. Why are we having all these groups and all these segments? Why don't we all just get together, have one big church, and get rid of all these distinctions if they're not issues of life and death? What about the Sodomites, right, who, who interpret Genesis 19 and Romans chapter 1 and other passages of the Bible through the lens of homosexuality, the homosexual interpretation of Genesis 19. Oh, no, God's not against homosexuality. He's against uh, those who are uh, not hospitable. Oh, no, Romans chapter 1, God's not against monogamous relations between homosexuals. It's non-monogamous relations. That's what it's talking about. It's not condemning this lifestyle. That's their interpretation of those passages. We're going to give them liberty? Do we have to welcome them into the fold? It's a different interpretation. It's clear to us, but it's not clear to them. Why is it that we don't extend liberty to them, but we do to others who have deviant views on doctrines of the Bible? Why then are all these different interpretations out there? Well, there's three possibilities. The first is that God is a God of contradiction. That God is a God of contradiction. That two contradictory truths are both equally valid, which is utter nonsense, right? This is complete lunacy. We, we can't get any. If that's the case, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Why would we listen to anything that he has to say? This cannot be. The second one is one that Ish alluded to earlier. God is the worst communicator in the history of the world. He is a miserable communicator. There is one truth, but God is so vague. 
He is so bad at communicating. He is so bad at coming down and reaching to our level that, that there is a truth, but he's revealed it so miserably that we can't understand it. And that is why we have all these different interpretations. The text is vague and ambiguous. We can't understand the truth. God should have been more clear. If he had been more clear, then we would know what to believe. That is a possibility. The third possibility is one person's telling the truth and the other person is a liar. But that's the possibility that no one wants to consider. Because when you start saying that, guess what's going to happen? You're going to start making enemies. They're going to come and want to chop your head off. They're going to want to come and throw you out and call you a leper. Right? We fear man more than we fear God. Because the fear of God, the, the, the consequences of offending God, they don't many times present, present themselves immediately or temporally. But the consequences of offending man will be immediate, and it will be in this world. But the one who has fear of God, the one who has faith and believes what the Bible says about those who reject the word of God, he will be much more cognizant of offending God than he will of offending man. Which one of these three options places the blame at the foot of man? And which ones place the blame on God? Let God be true, and let every man be a liar. 95% of the Bible is clear, can be easily understood. We can understand what the Bible says. And even those things that are unclear, with those things that are clear, we can come to a right understanding of them. And even the Apostle Peter recognizes that there are some things that are hard to understand when he talks about Paul in 2 Peter chapter 3. But he says, who are the ones who distort it? Right? It's not us. He says it's the unstable the unstable they twist and distort it. He says, just like they do the rest of the scriptures. Even though it's hard, he says, we can understand these things. Let God be true. Let every man be a liar. Well, let's look at a couple of passages that show that every word of God is true. Every word of God is true. First, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verse 2. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Here, he says, don't add to it, don't take away from it. Don't do anything, but believe whatever I say. Do all of it. Do all of it. Believe it all. Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12. There in verse 32. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. He says, everything I command, you have to do. If, he com if everything must be done, then that has to mean that we can understand what it is that God intended, what it is that God commanded, so that we can do it, that it's clear, it's accessible, that we can know the will of God. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Every word of God proves true. Not some of the words of God. Every word of God proves true. So we need to believe these words. Don't add to them or he will rebuke you and you will be found to be the liar. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same 
will be called least in the kingdom of God. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of God. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes or Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice he says there, not one dot, not one iota will pass away from the law. That means all of it is essential. None of it's going to pass away. It has all come from God. And whoever relaxes even the least of these commandments, what is God going to do to him? He will be least in the kingdom of heaven. And teaches others to do it as well. What a warning for us there. How dare we take something that God has revealed lightly or say that this is unimportant? No, we must believe and confess these things. Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Again, there, he does recognize the distinction between weightier matters. The issues of justice, mercy, and faithfulness were weightier than the issues of tithing on mint, dill, and cumin. But his conclusion is that you ought to do all of these things. Right? It's, it's, it's hypocrisy to do those less weighty things and to neglect the weightier. He doesn't say then do the weightier and neglect the less weighty. He says do it all. These you ought to have done while not neglecting the others. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God. Some scripture is breathed out by God. No, all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful. It is useful so that the man of God may be what? May be competent and equipped for every good work. All scripture is useful, which means that all scripture has to be understandable. That the man of God has to be able to come to the right understanding of all of scriptures. And it's useful for him. He needs to come to the right understanding so that he can be equipped and competent for every good work. It is not loving to let someone who is living in unbelief, who has a faulty understanding of some doctrine or teaching, it is not loving to say to them, we can agree and disagree on these things. We can go our separate ways, that you're okay, everything is fine. We need to help them come to the right understanding. And if they reject the right understanding, we need to tell them and warn them of the great danger that they are under because they are rejecting the very words of God. Revelation twenty-two, eighteen. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. If you add to it, God will add to you the plagues. If you take away from it, which is what this scheme is essentially doing, it is taking away doctrines that are in the Bible and saying that you can have these weird ideas about them that are not consistent with what is taught in the Bible. God will take away your share in the book of life, which is what? I mean, what's he talking about there? The slap on the wrist? He's talking about salvation, issues of salvation. Yes, going to hell. Taking your name out of the book of life is going to hell. That is what he is talking about. We must believe all the words of God. There are many examples that we could give, and we'll give you a few just quickly. Examples in the Bible of people who rejected one command or one teaching, and it brought death and destruction upon them. We need to start no further than Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve were given one commandment. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. 
and for violating that one commandment, right? And it's not like they murdered someone or were worshiping a false god. They didn't commit idolatry and, and make some graven image and those types of things, right? It was just don't eat the fruit of that tree. And yet what happened? They died. They plunged the whole world into chaos and misery and ruin. Leviticus chapter 10 Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, after having received the clear instructions of God for how they were to worship him and how they were to go about performing their duties as priests, they reject that which has been clearly given to them by God, and they offer to the Lord strange fire. They're not offering strange fire to Baal. They're not offering it to the gods of Egypt. They're offering it to the Lord, but they're doing it in a way that God told them not to do, or they're doing what God has not commanded them. Right? And this isn't one of the moral commands. It's just a ceremonial command. And yet what happens to them? God executes them. He kills them with fire. They die right there on the spot. Exodus chapter, or uh, uh, Numbers chapter 20, verses 10 through 13. There Moses, in anger, strikes the rock at the waters of Meribah. And what happens to Moses? Even though he's a true believer and a child of God, yet Moses is prohibited from entering into the promised land for committing what? One sin. One rejection of God. One rejection of not holding God as holy before the people. Ish alluded to earlier when we were talking with, uh, with Rick from 2 Samuel chapter 6. When they were transporting the ark uh, to Jerusalem, one of the men along the way, as they were transporting the ark in a way that was not prescribed by God, hauling it on a cart with oxen, and the ark began to topple and was about to fall, one of the men, Uzzah, reached out his hand in order to stabilize the ark to keep it from falling to the ground which we would say his intentions were what were his intentions good or evil was he like oh i really want to touch that thing and this is my opportunity no he was trying to keep it from falling to the ground trying to keep this uh, article that had been given to them by god from falling down to the ground and yet what did god do was it essential for him to not touch it or non-essential it was essential was it a primary or secondary command it was primary. He was not to touch it, and God did what? He executed him on the spot. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They lie to the Holy Spirit, and what does God do? He puts them to death. They die there immediately. One last passage is 1 Timothy chapter 4, and then we will take a small break. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and this is a good passage to teach this truth. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared. That sounds pretty harsh, right? That sounds like a very serious deviation, right? He says they depart from the faith. They have devoted themselves to deceitful spirits to teachings of demons, insincerity of liars, conscience are seared. Right? What would we expect? What are they teaching? What are they promoting that is so vile, that is so evil and so wicked that the apostle would use these types of terms to describe how great their sin and their unbelief and their false teaching is? Surely they're denying the doctrine of the Trinity. Right? Surely they're denying the humanity or the deity of Christ. Oh, they must be denying the substitutionary atonement. They must be denying one of these massive doctrines. What are they teaching? They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. What are they doing? They're forbidding marriage and they're saying, oh, these certain foods you can't eat. 
And he says that they pay attention to deceitful demons, doctrines of demons, conscience seared. They are liars. This isn't a major thing, right? This is a minor thing. And yet he says they are false teachers and they are devoted to deceitful spirits. Every word of God must be received. We must believe what the Bible says, which means we must devote ourselves to the study of the word of God. We must devote ourselves to reading the word of God cover to cover over and over and over again. If there's something that is unclear and something we can't figure out, then seek out men of God. Seek out teachers of God who can help you to understand these things. I know one such man. He's sitting here with us today. Call Dr. Ishwaran Moodliar. He knows the Bible well. He will help you understand these things. Go to your pastor. Seek him out. He will help you understand these things. We can understand the Bible. Isn't that great to know? We can understand the Bible, what God has revealed. It is there. It is accessible. It's not across the sea. It's not up in the heavens. It is near to us. It is right there. We just need to read it. Take it and read it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that you have revealed to us those things that we need. Lord, we need things for life. We need it for salvation. Lord, we need it so that we can be equipped and competent for every good work. Lord, everything that we need for salvation and for godliness you have given to us in your word everything we need to know about you and ourselves and christ and the gospel lord of righteousness faith everything is there lord it has been given to us by you it is clear lord may we be those who are like the bereans who seek out the word of god lord who examine the scriptures to see if these things are so lord may we be like those of Pisidia who when they heard the words, they begged. They begged the apostles to come back the next Sabbath and to tell them more of these things. Lord, this is what we need to be, people of your book who are dedicated and devoted to the word of God. Lord, who when something is unclear or something doesn't reconcile in our mind, Lord, that we will not stop until we find the answer. Lord, we will search the scriptures diligently. Lord, give us a double portion of your spirit, Lord. Give us the wisdom that he can give. So that, Lord, when we read the word of God, Lord, we would simply and clearly understand it. Lord, help us in these things. And, Lord, guard us from those who seek to confuse us, Lord, who seek to undermine the clear teachings of Bible and promote that which is in error. Lord, guard us from them. May we be able to expose them and see through their lies, Lord, that we might believe the truth. And we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.